0: It's good to hear that I'm a full-on man, Jason. I appreciate that. I was full-on. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Uh, did you guys get up here yesterday? Yeah. All right. How was, how was the night? Good. Are you guys enjoying? Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are from the valley like I am, but are you enjoying like the cool weather? Is that so nice? I got up here this morning, and I was like, I hope there's a jacket in the back of my car, which of course there is, because there's like everything in the back of my car. Um, I have kids, so there's also a lot of goldfish. If you guys need a snack, um, I've got I've got a pantry's worth of food in the floorboard of my car. I don't know if you want it, but you're welcome to it. Um, hey, well, I I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Um, like Jason said, I spent about four years up here running Wagon Train, which is our elementary camp, um, and I've been down at a church in Kingsburg. Um, so Kingsburg if you don't know it 's a little town just south of Fresno, a little farming town down there and uh, yeah I uh, actually do children's ministry i'm a, a pastor and elder at uh, Grace Church of the valley there and I uh, I love it it's been it's been a sweet time a sweet place but um, but I also love Hume I love the ministry that happens here I love camp I love um, just the way that God uses this beautiful place and the, the proclamation of his word in this place to impact lives. How he's used it to impact my own. How I've seen it in literally thousands of students' and adults' lives as they've come up on this mountain. And so um, so while I love where I am right now, one of the great blessings of it is that I'm close enough uh, to come up for a day and to join uh, guys like you, and to join in in times like this and just come up and share God's word. So um, so I'm excited to be here. Um, so Jason uh, assured you that I am a full-on man. Um, I'm not sure what that means exactly. Uh, we'll have to discuss that later. But um, but so uh, I, I'm 30. I have two kids. I have, oh, wait, no, I'm 31. I'm old enough that I forget. Uh, so... So that's happened, but, but 31, I have two kids. I have a son who just turned five and uh, one who is going to be two in December. Um, and so what that means is that I get very little sleep and I forget a lot of things. And, and, uh, and I have this experience that's happening more and more frequently now in my life, and I'm sure many of you, you men can relate to this, where I walk into a room... And I have a moment of, why am I here? What, 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 what am I doing in this room, right? And, and, uh, and sometimes I chalk it up to the fact that I'm not sleeping enough. Sometimes I chalk it up to the fact that I'm getting older. Uh, my wife will often have this experience, and she chalks it up uh, to the fact that her brain was liquefied during pregnancy, um, but I've never been pregnant, and I'm only 31, and so, so maybe it's not an age thing, and maybe it's not a, a pregnant thing, and um, maybe it's just part of the human experience, right? We all, we all have this, this thing that we can relate to, where we walk into a room, and then we immediately go, why did I come in here? Was, was I looking for something? Was, was there some purpose, some, some idea of why I'm in here? And when that's our experience of you know walking into the living room or walking into the kitchen, um, that's not that big of a deal, right? But I think in many ways, for many of us, we have a similar experience in all of life. We have this experience of wait, wait, wait a second, why why am I here? What was my purpose? What wh- why am I doing this? What am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be seeking and accomplishing? And and. Walking into a room in a way that is purposeless or aimless uh, is not a very big deal. But walking through life in a way that is purposeless and that is aimless is, of course, a waste, A terrible tragedy, a waste of the brief time that we have here on this earth. So today, this morning, I want to talk to you about just this little light idea of the purpose of life. Um, and and ultimately, What I want to show you is that the purpose of life is wrapped up in this concept of discipleship. So we're going to see that. We're going to see three callings of discipleship that we have in Scripture. Three callings on each of us in discipleship that Scripture gives us. But first, before we jump into all of that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this great calling of discipleship. These these great callings of discipleship. God, I pray for these men. I pray that they would take each of these things that you have called them to seriously, that they would see with clear eyes the purpose for which you have created them, the purpose of discipleship. So God, be with us. Open our eyes and our hearts to your word, to your truth, that we might walk in your ways, that we might live lives in your purpose to your glory. Father, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So the purpose of the Christian life, the purpose of the life of the believer wrapped up in what I'm calling three callings to discipleship or three callings of discipleship. The first of those callings we see in Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you want to open them up, it'll be in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we see the first calling of discipleship. It is simply this. We are called to be disciples. We're called to be disciples, right? This idea of discipleship starts with our call to be disciples. Starts with us being called to be disciples. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, these are the words of Christ, and we see this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That is the call of discipleship. The call of discipleship is for anyone who would follow Christ. To follow Christ is to be a disciple. We actually see Jesus confirm this a little bit later in the book of Luke in in chapter 14, verse 27. He says, if you do not take up your cross, then you are not my disciple. So what he's calling them to here in this following me, that is the picture of discipleship. So what is discipleship? Discipleship is the act first of denying self, Second, of taking up our cross. And third, of following Christ. And every one of us, every one of us who's put our faith and trust in Christ, we are called to discipleship. Jesus is not just our Savior, He is also our Lord. So if we are to follow Him, this is what it looks like it starts with self denial. If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself. What is pictured in that self-denial? Well, I think there are a few things. That denying of self that Jesus is calling his disciples, these people who want to follow him too. The first thing is repentance. In that denial of self, there is a denial of our own sinful, fleshly desires. If we look in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about this as he calls the church in Ephesus to put off the old man. To put off who you were before you knew Christ, before you were saved by Christ, given over to the passions and the desires, the wicked desires of the flesh, put that off, deny that old self, put that away, and put on the new man. So this denial of self pictures the putting off of the old, right? It pictures repentance, a turning from sin and turning towards Christ, but that's not all that it pictures, Denial of self is repentance, it's putting off of the old man, but it's also humility. It's also humility, and and for there, I I think of the words in Philippians chapter 2. As Paul is calling the church in Philippi to unity, he's calling them to humility, and he points to an example. What's the example Paul points to in Philippians chapter 2? Anyone know? Jesus, right? It's, It's the example of Christ. He says, have this mind... Among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we are called, yes, to put off our sinful fleshly desires, to put off the old man, but we're also called to walk in humility. To walk in service to others, to not seek our own advantage, but to seek the advantage of others. See, the life of, the, of a disciple is a life that pictures the self sacrificial humility of Jesus. A life of a disciple is a life that is radically others focused, that seeks the advantage of others and not the advantage of ourselves. So put off the old man. Walk in humility, deny yourself. But this denial of self goes even further still. Yes, we are called to put off our sinful ways, to put off our flesh, to no longer live in the tyranny of our sin. Yes, we are called to walk in humility that looks like Christ's humility and counting others as more significant than ourselves. But we're also called ultimately to view our life as not our own to deny ourselves is not just to deny ourselves in little moments in certain areas in uh, certain areas of conduct but to deny ourselves as Christ is calling his followers to is ultimately to view our lives as no longer belonging to us Galatians 2:20 says That I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My life is no longer my own because the life that was my own was put to death along with Christ. And so now my life doesn't belong to me, but it belongs to Christ. The life that I live belongs to him. And so every thought, every action, every decision that I make, it's not mine to make, it is his. That's what self-denial is. It's humility, yes, it's putting off the old man, yes, but it's ultimately this final realization that my life is not mine, it is his. It is not to be lived to my glory or my benefit, but to his. That's what this self Self-denial of the disciple is. That's what we're all called to. So we are to be disciples first by denying ourselves. The next call there that he gives is to take up our cross. To take up our cross. To deny ourselves to say, my life is no longer mine, but it is yours, Jesus. And now take up our cross. What does that mean? What, what is he talking about there? What is that taking up of our cross? Now, the cross obviously is a, a very important symbol for, for those of us who know the gospel and we, we see the cross. Is there one in here? I don't think there is, but um, we see the cross and, and, and we think of the sacrifice. We think of it's this image of love, right? But, but this is Jesus talking to his disciples, to those who would follow him before he himself has gone to the cross, so what is the cross? Well, it's a symbol of, of self-denial, in a way, taking up one's cross. But even more than that, it's a symbol of, of suffering, of persecution, of pain. And so what he's calling his disciples to is deny yourself, realize that your life is not yours, but now it is mine, and take up your cross, meaning willingly submit to suffering, to persecution, to pain, to difficulty, to heartache, even to death for the sake of Christ. That to follow Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, is to give up our life and say that it's his and then be willing and committed to walk through suffering, to stay steadfast in the midst of trial and persecution and pain because of Christ. That's what taking up our cross is. And more than just being willing to walk into suffering, the call of the disciple is to count suffering as joy. We see that in the book of James. and in, in James chapter 1, he tells us to count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds because we know what that trials produces steadfastness. Produces perseverance, produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness has its perfect effect in sanctifying us, in making us like Christ. So the call to be a disciple is a call to deny ourselves and to willingly commit to a life of pain and suffering and trial, a life of difficulty, a life of persecution, a life of ostracization, a life maybe even that will end in our own death for the sake of the gospel. Why? Why? Because our God and our king and the author of our life, the redeemer of our life, the one who our life now belongs to, has called us to that suffering, to take up our cross daily and follow him. So we're called to be disciples in our self-denial, in our steadfastness under suffering, keeping our eye on the upward call of God in Christ, standing firm under persecution because we know that it is God's sanctifying power in our life. But that's not all. He says to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and then finally, that last call in here in the call to be disciples, he says that we are to follow him. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and then he says, follow me. In John chapter eight let me turn there. In John chapter eight, thirty-one, he says this. I don't have a bookmark there, so you guys gotta wait a second. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So in Luke 9, Jesus said that in order to be his disciples, in order to follow him, we are to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. here in John 9, John 8, rather, sorry, here in John 8, He's saying that in order to be his disciples, we are to abide in his word. To abide in his word, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. That to be his disciples, we abide in his word. Because abiding in his word is not simply a call to read our Bibles. Now, that's good. We should should read our Bibles. We We should understand His Word. We should know His Word. We should spend time meditating on His Word every single day. We should open His Word and saturate ourselves in it. But when He says that we are to abide in His Word, He's not simply talking about reading it, He's talking about living it out. He's talking about practicing it, living in His Word. That's what it means to abide, right? It says, my disciples abide in my word. That means they live lives saturated in my word. They live lives in light of my word. And we see that as he continues here. He says, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. They're forgetting about Egypt, I guess. How is it? that you say you will become free. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, this abiding in the word of God is tied directly by Jesus to being set free from sin. Abiding in the word of God is not merely reading the word of God, it is doing the word of God. It is putting it into practice. And so this following Jesus is a picture of obedience. If we are to be disciples, it starts it starts with denying ourselves, continues with taking up our cross, and ultimately it's played out through obedience to Christ, through following him abiding in his word, abiding in obedience, living in obedience to what he has said and what he has commanded. We see a similar uh, thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. As people come and they tell him that his, his mother is asking for him. And he says, who is my mother and my sister and my brother? But he who obeys the will of my father who is in heaven. That's what discipleship looks like. It looks like obedience, It looks like obedience. So the first call on us as disciples, the first purpose of our life is to be disciples. To be disciples. To be men who deny ourselves, who take up our cross daily, who face pain, suffering, persecution for the sake of the gospel and ultimately, who live lives of following Christ in faithful obedience to the commandments of His Word. We are called to be disciples, but we're also called to make them. We're called to be disciples, but we're also called to make disciples. We are called in our own lives and our own character to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Christ, but we're also called to be people who find others and who point them towards Christ, that they might also deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow their king. We're called to be disciples, but we're also called to make disciples. This calling is perhaps put most clearly in one of the most famous verses in Scripture, In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the Great Commission is something that we most often talk about in the context of missions, right? Right? Usually when we bring up the Great Commission, we talk about how this is a call to go and to to go into all of the nations of the world and proclaim the gospel. We look at the Great Commission as a, a call of worldwide evangelism, and to be clear, it absolutely is. But that's not all it is. And in fact, I would argue that's not even primarily what it is. Because in the Great Commission, you have these kind of four four verbs, right? It says, go and make disciples. Go, make, teaching, baptizing. These four verbs, but the main imperative, the call of those verses, the call of the Great Commission is not go. What is it? It's make disciples. Make disciples is the primary call of the Great Commission. Those others, go, teach, And baptize, those are modifiers to that primary imperative of make disciples. Go, teach, and baptize are modifiers. They're telling us how exactly are we to do this task of make disciples. What does it look like to make disciples? But the call of the Great Commission, the call of the church, the mission that Jesus gave to his church as he ascended to be at the hand of his Father... The mission that he gives to his people, to his church corporately, but also to each of us believers individually is to make disciples. That's our purpose. That's our goal. That's our mission. Make disciples. How are we to do that? That's where we get into these modifiers. The first is go. Go. Now, like I said, often the Great Commission is used as his call to global missions. That's certainly there, right? He says, go and make disciples to all nations. Some commentators have looked at the fact that this go is not the primary verb, and they said, well, well, then it's, it should be better understood or better translated as, as you are going. I don't know if I'm convinced of that translation, but, but there's something to it. Because there's a question of where are we to go? Where are we to go? If we're to go and make disciples, then, then where are we to go? Where are we to go do this disciple-making work that we're called to? And of course, there's the answer of to all nations, but the thing that we so often lose when we think of to all nations is that to all nations includes this one, that to all nations necessitates to all neighborhoods, right? That in order to take the gospel to all nations, we also have to take the gospel to Fresno, and we also have to take the gospel to Kingsburg, and we also have to take the gospel to Paso Robles, and we also have to take the gospel to Bakersfield, yes, even Bakersfield, Grew up in Bakersfield. That was it. All right, but we have to go where? Go, yes, to the nations, but also to our neighborhoods. And we see this mirrored in in the parallel passage that we have in Acts chapter one. That in Acts chapter one, as Jesus gives his command to his disciples before ascending to be with the Father, he doesn't just say go into all nations and make disciples. He says, "You will be my witnesses." In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? So what he's doing here is concentric circles. You will be my witnesses. You will proclaim my gospel. You will make disciples where? In Jerusalem, in the city where we are right now, in your immediate context. That's where you're going to start. And then you're going to go to Judea and spread it out a little bit. Then you're going to go to Samaria, kind of a faraway land. And then finally, you're going to the ends of the earth. So yes, there's still this call to global missions, and we should take that call seriously as churches and as individual believers. The gospel is to go out to all corners of the world, absolutely, but it starts locally. Your call to make disciples starts in the smallest local unit. I said in Fresno and in Bakersfield, and I said your cities, but you know what? Starts smaller than that. Start with your families. If you have kids, that's your primary call as a disciple is to disciple your children. Disciple your wife. Disciple those in your local church body. You are called to disciple them, to show them what it looks like to live a life of denying yourself, of taking up your cross, and of following Jesus. You're not just called to be a disciple, but you are called to make disciples, to go, not just to the ends of the earth, but to go to your family, to go to your friends, to go to your community, to go to your church body and to make disciples. Listen, men, there are young men in your church right now who need someone to show them how to follow Jesus. I know because I, I, I talk to them and I, and I see them and I'll come up here and I'll speak for young adult retreats or I'll, I'll, I'll spend time with, with high school students up here and they'll come and they'll talk to me and say, I just want someone to show me what it looks like to follow Jesus. If you're not doing that with someone, then you're not fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, you might take a weekend every year to go down and build a house down in Mexico, and that's great, and I'm glad you're doing that. But don't neglect Jerusalem because your eyes are on Samaria. You need to do this work to make disciples where you're at because this is the design of the church. This is what the church is called to do. This is what the church was built for. And I'll tell you right now, especially with young men, there are young men in your churches, young men in your congregations who don't have a godly man in their life to point them towards the cross. Maybe their dads aren't in the picture. Maybe their dads aren't, aren't walking with the Lord. Or maybe their dads are simply neglecting their duty to disciple their children. But there are young men, I guarantee you, who need the influence of a godly older man to point them towards Jesus. You don't have to be perfect to be that man. You just have to be willing to walk with them, to wrestle through things with them, and to seek Christ with them. So go. Make disciples. Next call is to baptize them. Now, Look, we're at Hume. I'm not allowed to talk too much about what baptism is and what it isn't, all right? You guys might disagree with me on that. But ultimately, regardless of where we stand on what baptism is and whether we should sprinkle or immerse or use a slip and slide or whatever, um, ultimately, we would all agree that baptizing them is a picture of this entrance into God's family, That, that baptism signifies this new life in some way. And so, when we see this call to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it is a call on the church to observe the ordinances? Absolutely. But it's also a call to evangelism. Right? If these are kind of the three steps of discipleship, it starts by going, getting in relationship with people, being with people, talking with people. The next step is to baptize them. It's to show them the gospel. So yes, there is this call to evangelism in baptism. We are called to send out the truth of the gospel. That we might enter from death into life on the basis of what Christ has done for us through his death and resurrection. So he says, go, make disciples by baptizing them, by sharing the gospel with them, by evangelizing them, by giving them the truth of new life that can be found in Jesus. And then this last part teaching them to observe all that i have commanded go baptize teach now for some of you you're on board for all this discipleship stuff you're like yeah that's great i want to get in the life of a young man and point him towards jesus and then i say the word teach and it gets a little scary Because when you think teach, you think of a classroom, and that's not a place that you're comfortable. You're not someone who could sit down and and write an essay on on theology. That's not how you're wired. That's not what your background is. And so when you hear teach, you go, I don't know how I'm supposed to teach somebody. But here's the thing. The majority of teaching is not done in a classroom. And when we're called to disciple by teaching, for some of you, that might be a classroom. Some of you might be big brain theologians who, who love to get up and teach. That's something I love to do maybe you do as well, but for many of you, maybe even most of you, that teaching is not going to be a formal teaching setting. It's not going to be getting up behind a pulpit and preaching the word. It's not even going to be teaching a Sunday school class or even meeting and going over a book with someone. It's simply going to be teaching by the model of your life because that's where the majority of teaching happens. That's what discipleship is. I, I mentioned that, that I live in, in Kingsburg now. Um, I've been off the hill, off the mountain for about two years. So we spent about four years up here. I've been down uh, kind of in the Fresno area for about two years. And one of the things I was most excited about when I moved off the hill was the idea of living less than an hour and a half away from a restaurant. All right. The dining hall they do a pretty good job, but when you live up here for 4 years, sometimes you just want, dude, you just want McDonald's. Like it doesn't have to be anything crazy. You just want something else, you know? And uh, so I was so excited to go live in the real world where there were like places to eat. And the first few weeks that I was in Kingsburg, one of my friends who's um, one of, one of our other pastors on staff, he would, he would take me out to lunch and he kind of like showed me all of the spots, right? He showed me like where the good Chinese food place, which it's kind of weird to me that Kingsburg has a good Chinese food place, but it does, believe it or not. He showed me like where where these, the good restaurants are, the places you should try out. And now I've been there two years and I still go to those same like four restaurants that he took me to. And I order like the same four things that he said, oh, this, you got to get this. You got, you got to get the Chili Verde here. You got, you know, like, because he discipled me. He discipled me in the good food of Kingsburg. And he didn't do it by sitting down and saying, uh, now, now, Aaron, here's, here's the good food, all right? And don't go there. They're too slow. I got to fly in my soup there. He doesn't do that. No, what does he do? He takes me with him. He took me to lunch. He showed me how to order as, as he ordered, right? And so discipleship, this teaching, is more often showing than it is telling, right? And so even, you know, I... I give the example of, of finding good food, but but even as I look to my own Christian life, as my own development, sanctification as a believer, that the people who had the greatest impact on my life, who formed me most into the man that I am and that I'm becoming, are, are not people whose teaching I sat under. Now, there are some, um, and we should all be in churches where we're sitting under the faithful teaching of God's word that forms and shapes us and disciples us. But ultimately, the people who've had the most impact on my life are the men who I've done life with, who I have seen the ways that they follow Christ, who I've seen the ways that they raise their families, who I've seen the ways that they love their wives, who I've seen the ways that they commit themselves to the study of God's word, Ultimately, more is shown than is told in teaching, more is shown than is told in discipleship. And we see this as well in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's actually what what Jesus calls the greatest commandment, the summary of the whole Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says this, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. So listen to this. He gives this, the greatest commandment. What Jesus says sums up all of the law. You shall love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And then he puts into place this structure by which this commandment is to be transmitted from one generation to the next. And listen to how he describes it. He says, you shall love God with all of your heart, soul, and might. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts and on your house and on your gates. So this is the greatest commandment in the history of Scripture. To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. He says this should be written on your heart. And then he gives this method of transmission. How this message, this commandment to love God with everything is to be discipled into the next generation. He says you shall teach them how? By talking about it as you go about life. As you walk by the way, as you sit down, as you lie down, as you rise up, it should be on your doorpost. It should be like it's tattooed between your eyes because it should be so saturated in the way that you live your life, in the ways that you talk to your children, that they should see this truth. He doesn't set up a classroom structure, he doesn't set up, you shall sit your kids down and teach them. Now, look. If you've got kids, you should be spending time in the word explicitly with them every single day. Every day before bedtime, we sit down with my kids, we do our family worship. You should absolutely be doing that. But this call to discipleship is not simply a call to teach through words. It's a call to teach through our lives, through our actions. As we walk by the way, as we lie down, as we get up, as we go through life. So you are called to make disciples. Go, find someone. Find someone to disciple. Find someone to point towards Christ. Start as close to you as possible. Start with your kids. Start with your family. Start with your church. Make disciples by baptizing them. Share the gospel with them. Make sure that we start at step one, which is repentance and faith. And then teach them. Teach them what it looks like to live a life committed to Christ, not just through your words but through your actions. Bring them along with you as you go about life that they might learn to follow Christ the way that you do. Paul says this over and over and over again in his teachings. It was his method. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. That brings us to our last point here. The first is that we are to be discipled. The next is that we are to make disciples disciples. And then finally, this third call of discipleship on the life of a believer is that we are to get discipled. We need to be disciples of Jesus. We need to make disciples of others. And we need to get discipled by faithful men. We need to make sure that we are not just pouring out, but we are being poured into. I recently had the opportunity to come up here to Joshua, which is, Hume has a gap year program. It's a kind of a... It's kind of designed to go between like the end of high school, the beginning of college, and they have about 40 college-age kids who come up here. They live up here for a year, and they're discipled for that year. You've probably seen a lot of them this weekend. They're probably serving you your food. Um, But I had the opportunity to come up and speak with them for a week, and one of the things they do in that discipleship program is they memorize the whole book of Philippians, um, which is pretty impressive. It sounds a little more impressive than it is. It's only four chapters. Um, And... uh, They memorized that whole book of Philippians, and this is kind of the beginning of the year, so I got to go up and speak to them for a week. And what I did is I went through the major themes of the book of Philippians. And one of those major themes that Paul is communicating to the church in Philippi is this call to steadfastness. He's calling them to stand firm in the midst of a difficult trial, to stand firm in the midst of persecution. And in that call, we see it really crop up in chapter 3, he says this. This is Philippians 3. I'll start in verse 12. It says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward The goal. For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think of this way. Think in this way. And if any in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he's calling them to press on towards the goal. He says, I'm not perfect, I'm not totally sanctified, I'm still on the way. But then listen to what he says in verse 17: Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So he tells them, I'm pressing on. Pressing on towards Christ's likeness, towards steadfastness. And so keep your eyes on me. Imitate me and imitate others who are holding fast to the gospel. He goes on, he makes this even more explicit in chapter 4 verse 9. When he says this, what you have learned and received and have heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. See, this is the New Testament model of discipleship. The New Testament model of discipleship is that we would be faithful and we would look to those who are faithful. That we would look to those who are following Christ and we would follow them as as Paul says, that we would imitate them as they imitate Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11.1. One. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We see this model played out in 2 Timothy chapter 2, as Paul is talking to his disciple Timothy, this young man who he is training up in the the fear and admonition of the Lord, this young man who he is training up to pastor well. And he tells him: the truths that you have heard from me, entrust them to faithful men that they might also teach others. So Paul has learned these truths from Christ. He's entrusting them to Timothy, and he's calling Timothy to entrust them to others who will entrust them more to others. This is the design of the New Testament. It is that we are to be disciples who make disciples who are being discipled. That's our call. So yes, you are called to be a disciple. Are you doing that? Are you living a life of self denial? Are you taking up your cross daily? Are you seeking Christ? Are you obeying Him? It's what you're called to. You're also called to make disciples. Are you helping others to do the same? Are you pointing others towards Christ? Are you proclaiming the good news of Christ? Are you going and are you teaching, not just through your words, but through your actions, through your life? And ultimately, and you're going to fail in those first two if you don't get this third one, are you being discipled? Are there men in your life that you can point to and say, I'm following him as he follows Christ? Not saying that there are men in your life who are perfect, but are there men who help you to be more like Jesus? Now, often when we think of discipleship, we think of this kind of of age structure, and there's something to that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but for someone to disciple you, they don't have to be older than you. They don't even have to be further along in their faith than you. But who are the people in your life who can teach you something about what it looks like to follow Jesus? When I think of disciples in my own life, I think of an old lady um, who was at a church that, that I was at when I was in seminary. And um, her name was Edna because of course it was, and she could not tell you what any of the words I was learning in seminary meant, right? She couldn't tell you what the hypostatic union was. She couldn't tell you about post or amillennialism or premillennialism. Or, she couldn't talk about any of those things that me as a, as a young 20-something-year-old guy in seminary thought was so important, but you know what she did? She prayed. Man, did she pray. She took prayer so seriously. If she told you she was going to pray for something, she would. And you would forget that you had ask her to pray for something. And then six months later, she would ask you about it and say, I've been praying every day. And you're like, oh, that was, thank you. That, that ended months ago, right? Because she was a absolutely committed prayer warrior. And I learned from her, I was discipled by her in what it looked like to pray well. As I sat with her and I prayed with her, I learned what prayer should look like, not because she had some knowledge that I didn't have, but because she was, she believed it. <laughs> she, she was deeply given to this practice of prayer. Even now, some of the people who are most impactful in, in discipling me, although they don't know it, are the young people that I'll work with, the um, sometimes college students or high school students who have recently come to faith and I see in them this fervor, this zeal, They're so taken by the truth and the power of the gospel, by the beauty of the word of God. They're overcome with with a passion to go and to share the gospel with lost people. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember, and that passion sometimes seems so far off. But when I spend time with those young people, those new believers, that passion is there, and it's kindled in me again. That's discipleship. They don't know they're doing it, but they're discipling me because they're pointing me towards Jesus. So, this model of discipleship is not simply a model of the chain, although that's helpful to have someone who we can look up to in following Christ. It's more of a model of a web. It's it's the one and others that we see played out through the New Testament. Um, Like in the the book of Hebrews where we're called to spur one another on to love and good works, we're called to exhort one another that we might not be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. We are all to do it, all to disciple one another, to point one another towards the cross. I'll leave you guys with this today. Um, I've touched on it a few times, but as I've come up here and spoken with young adults retreats, I'll almost always talk about the church and the necessity, the importance of the church. I feel like so often with um, kind of that high school or college generation right now, there's, there's not a love for the church. And, and it comes from a lot of places, a, a lot of different areas of, you know, difficulty and probably even failure in the church in the past few generations, there's this disillusionment, and, and so my goal is to show them biblically why the church is important and why they need to be a part of the church and not just a part of their, their campus ministry or their college fellowship or whatever. Um, and one of the things I point to is, is the need for discipleship, that, that we need to be discipling each other. And I always go to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs twenty twenty nine says this. It says that the glory... Of a young man is his strength, but the glory of an old man is his white hair, his gray hair. And I've talked about that with my dad, and I said he doesn't have any glory because he's bald. He said he does have glory. It just comes out of his ears. And, uh, <laughs> but here's the idea, right? The glory of a young man is his strength. The glory of an old man is his gray hair. We should be discipling each other. Some of you have some gray hair. You've got some wisdom, some experience. You've got some life behind you. You have a view of the world that young people can profit from. You know know how to parent through things that people my age are walking through because you've walked through them already. You know what it's like to to be... um, A young guy right out of high school who's directionless and doesn't know what he's going to be doing with his life because you've been through that. You've walked through that. You've got some gray hair. And so those young guys, they need you. They need your wisdom. They they, they need your guidance. They they need your life experience. That's something that should happen in the church. Some of you are young guys. You don't have gray hair yet. But what you do have is strength. Strength. I mean, there's something to be said for old man strength, but we won't go there. Um, But you have have time. You have energy. You have passion. I talked about how, how talking with young people with high schoolers who have just come to faith is such an invigorating thing for me because they remind me of the zeal that I had at first. You have that. And you know what? The old guys, the gray hairs in your churches, they need that. So whether you are the young man with strength or the old man with gray hair, we need each other. We need to disciple each other. We need to point each other towards Christ because that's how the church has been designed. That's what it has been made for, that we might spur one another on to love and good works. We might encourage one another, exhort one another that we might become more like Christ, that we might be progressively conformed to his image, that we might be better disciples of our king. These are the three callings of discipleship on your life. First, that you would be a disciple, that you would deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Second, that you would make disciples, that you would go and make disciples, baptizing, teaching to observe all that he has commanded. And finally, that you would get discipled. That you would have people in your life who point you towards Jesus. Someone, hopefully, who's a little bit further along than you, someone who you can look to and say, this person, I'm going to follow them as they follow Christ, not putting them on a pedestal and thinking they're perfect, but just learning what it is to be a a follower of Christ by watching their life. And you would also do that for others. That's your call. Be a disciple, make disciples, and get discipled. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this structure of discipleship. We thank you for the the faithful men that you've put in our lives. God, I'm sure that every one of us in here can think of some. Maybe there's someone right now who's, who's faithfully discipling us. Maybe it's something as we look to our past, we see the influence of a a pastor or a friend. Father, God, we thank you for the influence of those men in our lives. God, we pray that we would be your disciples, that we would follow you with our lives, that we would seek to live lives that glorify Christ. And God, I also pray for the men in this room that they would take the call to disciple others seriously. God, that they would take the call to point others towards you seriously, that they would teach, that they would teach through not just their words, but through their actions, through the ways that they love their wives, through the ways that they raise their children, through the ways that they engage in business deals, through the ways that they walk through life, that they talk, that they carry themselves, to the ways that they Treat the waiter at the restaurant, God, I pray that they would teach and instruct what it is to follow Christ in every aspect of life, that young men especially might see them, might enter into their lives, and that that might have the effect of pointing those young men towards you, towards your truth, towards your grace, towards your gospel, towards your holiness. Father, we love you. We thank you. I pray that we would live lives of purpose, lives of discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen.